whenever you plan on being gone for a while, it does make you a little bit apprehensive of traveling. And I know some of you have asked me, well, you've been to some of these places before. Why are you going back? I will tell you that when Brother Tim Fisher tried to encouraged me to go to the Bible lands the first time. I was extremely nervous, and I was a little bit fearful. I got there, and I then no longer had any fear of going to the place. But going the first time, I was excited to see the sights myself. The second time I went to the places, I began to learn more and appreciate more. And now I really thrill seeing people see it for the first time themselves. I love seeing the excitement on people's face when they realize, hey, I can read about that in the Bible. And uh, that really gives it some meaning. And I will tell you, in preparing for this lesson tonight, uh, I can remember vividly being on top of Mount Nebo and seeing the reconstruction of the serpent on the pole, the brazen serpent, uh, that's on top of Mount Nebo, and that's a photo of it that you're looking at. Um, and it does make you think about where the children of Israel were, where they were at, and also the events that were a part of it. You see, the truth is there are so many events recorded in the Old Testament that have powerful lessons. I tried to think this afternoon of the great lessons I learned when I was in very small Bible classes. And I think about the lessons that stuck with me the most were those that came from the Old Testament. I remember vividly uh, being taught about Noah and the ark, about Abraham and Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, and thinking about all of those great powerful lessons. And we deprive ourselves of a great learning if we do not spend some time in the Old Testament. The events in the plain of Moab serve as a warning for us. The children of Israel made some real bad decisions during their wilderness wandering. And you and I need to learn the lessons that come from it. And I do want you to understand that this has a New Testament tie-in. If you go to the book of John, chapter 3, we all know verse 16, but you back up a couple of verses to verse 14, and Jesus says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes on him should not perish, but have everlasting life. You and I need to realize the great lessons from that. And so tonight what we're going to do is simply look at two things. We're going to talk about the incident that occurred. Brother Joe read that to us from Numbers 21. And then the instruction that we ought to draw from it. In other words, here's some lessons that we can learn from studying this passage. Let's go back now to Numbers chapter 21, and I'm going to read verses 4 through 6 again and add with that verses 7, 8, and 9. Then they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. 
And the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water. And our soul loathes this worthless bread. So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. And they bit the people. And many of the people of Israel died. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he may take the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and it shall be that whoever or that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on a pole, and so it was if a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. You have to understand the background of what's occurring. The children of Israel are nearing the end of their 40-year wilderness wandering. If you'll remember, God could have taken the children of Israel right from Mount Sinai all the way up into the Promised Land. But you've got a problem. When they went to spy out the land, they decided that the job was too big for them. They decided that God couldn't fulfill the promise that he had made to them. And ten of the spies said, we can't do this. We need to go back. And so the children of Israel did this. They just wandered around, wandered around for a period of almost 40 years. It's near the end of that 40-year period. How do I know? Because you can look in chapter 20 and you can see the death of Miriam. And you can see the death of Aaron. It's almost the end of that 40-year period. And they are, according to Moses' description of their geography, they're going around the land of Edom. And they're going to come into that land of Moab just on the east side of the Jordan River. The people, now mostly populated by a second generation. You say, well, why do you say that? is because God had said those people who rejected him were going to die in the wilderness. And most of them had. Now you're dealing with a new generation, a second generation of people. And what do they do? They do the same thing that their parents did. They complained. They complained. In fact, if you will read carefully, you'll say, most of you people were children when you came out of Egypt if you hadn't already been born while in this wilderness wandering. And yet they're still repeating this idea, why did you bring us out of Egypt to bring us out into this wilderness? The book of Numbers, in my judgment, could be also described as the book of complaining. I want you to listen to the children of Israel as they come out of Egypt and they're making their journey. Chapter 11, 1. Now when the people complained, it displeased the Lord. For the Lord heard it and his anger was aroused. So the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some in the outskirts of the camp. 
But I go on to chapter 14, verse 2, verse 27. The children of, all the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation of them said to them, If we had only died in the land of Egypt, or if we had only died in the wilderness. You see, they're fussing, they're saying, We'd rather be dead than where we are right now. You drop down to verse 27. How long shall I bear with this evil congregation who complain against me? I've heard the complaints of the children of Israel make against me. God said, I am tired of their groaning, moaning, murmuring, and complaining. But it's not the end. You get to chapter 16. Korah, Dathan, and Abiram had led a rebellion. And the children of Israel saw the anger of the Lord burst forth against them. In chapter 16, verse 41, On the next day all the congregation, children of Israel, complained against Moses and Aaron, saying, You have killed the people of the Lord. Do you see the complaining that comes along every chapter or two? Then you get just to the chapter prior to where we're studying tonight. Chapter 20 and verse 13. Then the water of Meribah, this was the water of Meribah, because the children of Israel contended with the Lord, and he was hallowed among them. Do you see the complaining, the contention? And here you get to chapter 21, and the children of Israel are again complaining before the Lord. Now on this occasion... They're complaining about the food. They wanted variety. I want you to notice how they insulted God in verse 5. He, they say, for there is no food and no water, and our soul loathes this worthless bread. Now, I want you to think if someone were starving and you are providing their daily food to them, they need food to eat and you're giving them food and they come up and they say to you, do you know what? We just loathe this food that you're giving us. It's worthless. You know what most of us would say? Fine, starve to death. You know what God said? I'm angry with you. But he kept feeding them. You see, their insult of God is there. So the Lord has a plan, and his plan is to correct their complaints. And what he did was to send among them fiery serpents. The word fiery indicates the burning that exists when a person is bitten by one of these. It is a synonym, if you will, for a poisonous snake, a deadly snake. I'm going to tell you, I am scared to death of snakes. I don't care what variety they are. Someone will pick up some of them up by the tail. They may say, oh, this is just a black snake. They're harmless. They're not harmless if they give you a heart attack. <laughs> the truth is some of us are afraid of snakes. And these were deadly snakes. And God sent these serpents among them to bite them. You imagine being in that wilderness. And you imagine being bitten by one of those snakes. 
And what happened did have an impact on them. Because the people repented in verse 7 and confessed their sin. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord for us that he may take the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. You know, that's really a great lesson to realize that when somebody is punished, they get the lesson, and they did here. The Lord instructed Moses to make a bronze brazen, which the word indicates mainly a copper serpent. And in fact, if you study the geography of the area, this area around Timnah has copper mines everywhere. It's almost like you can just walk up and pull copper out of the ground there. Um, of course, it's not a very hospitable area, but he is told here to make it and put it up on a pole, and everyone has to look at it. Question. Why did the Lord do it this way? Answer, I don't know. All I know is that's what the Lord told the children of Israel to do. Why didn't the Lord say, for instance, to drink something? Or why didn't he tell them to do a number of other things? Because that's what the Lord told them to do. And they must do it. Now, what I'd like to do with the rest of our time is to talk about some instruction from it. And someone might say, but that's just an Old Testament story, an account, if you will. And it tells us about these events, but that doesn't apply to us today? Don't you know that we're not wandering through some wilderness? We're not Jews. We're not the children of Israel. We're certainly not in that kind of land and going through those kinds of circumstances. But now listen to Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 9 through 11. He says, Nor let us tempt Christ... As some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. Nor complain as some of them also complain and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all these things happened to them as examples. And they are written for our admonition upon whom the end of the ages have come. You see, what Paul says is these things are examples for us. They are written to admonish us to not do the things they did, to learn from their mistakes. Boy, isn't it great when we learn from somebody else's mistakes and we don't have to suffer the consequences ourselves? I remember every year going to school that usually the first guy who got in trouble was made an example. Uh, I can see some of my teachers taking a little boy who would uh, do something they ought not do and bring him up in front of the class. Of course, they can't do that now. And they would really whip him good right in front of the class. You know what that did? That made the rest of us pay attention. You know, when you look at the Bible and you see people make mistakes and you see the judgment of God upon them, you say, I, I better learn something from that. 
Well, what lessons ought we to learn? I just want to point out two or three here. The first is complaints and correction. The complaints we might have and the correction that God would provide. Number two, I want us to talk about the cure. There was a cure that was offered and there's a parallel in the New Testament. And then to offer a word of caution from what we learn in 2 Kings. So let's go through these three and then we'll bring our lesson to a close. Complaints and corrections. When I look back at what the children of Israel had, I tend to not be sympathetic with them. And yet when I find myself in similar situations, do you know what I do? I mentioned before that when we traveled through Mount Sinai, we stayed in places that were less than what we had been staying in. The food was lesser quality than what we had eaten at other places. And you know what we all did? We all moaned and griped and complained. I don't say we all did, but some of us did. And then it hits you, boy, I'm doing the same thing the children of Israel did. Listen to Psalm 78, 24 and 25. He rained down manna on them to eat and given them the bread of heaven. Men ate angels' food. He sent them food to the full. He gave them good quality. He gave them angels' food. And number two, he gave them all they wanted, all they needed to eat so they could be full. You didn't have to say, well, God, you just gave me just a little bit and I, I'm not satisfied. No, he gave them plenty to satisfy them. But they still didn't realize what they had. They were an unhappy people with what God had provided and do you realize today we're sometimes really unhappy with what God has provided us? Let me illustrate this. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 4, Paul says, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing in kingdom, preach the word. Be urgent or be ready in season, out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up to themselves teachers. And they will turn away their ears from the truth and be turned aside to fables. I challenge you to do something this week. I challenge you to get on the internet and listen to a sermon by some of our brethren. Do a search for Church of Christ sermons. Just listen for a little while. And see if what you hear in many cases may not be just a lot of psychobabble. I'm not suggesting that all not even suggesting the majority. But I'd suggest to you that there are a lot of places and a lot of congregations where people, the Bible is no longer the focus of the sermons. 
And the sermons are no longer the focus of the service. And what you have is people are more interested in, let's don't call him a preacher, let's call him a speaker, who is there to arouse the good feelings of the audience. But the truth is, when you start looking, people are no longer content, just like in 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul said they'll no longer be content with sound doctrine. They'll find somebody who will tell it like they want to hear it. It's been that way before. Even in the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 30 verse 10, who say to the seers, do not see, and to the prophets, do not prophesy to us right things. Speak to us smooth things. Prophesy deceits. Don't tell us we're sinning. Tell us we're okay. Tell us everything's all right. You see, the children of Israel were not satisfied with the food that God gave them. They described it as loathing, worthless bread. Do you know the way I hear some people talk about services? You mean you go to church now? I got so tired of hearing those boring sermons. All the preacher ever does is read from that book called the Bible. You know, if he'd tell us something interesting, something fun, but that's all. Do you realize that we're not that different than the children of Israel? Jeremiah 23, 36. And the oracle of the Lord you shall mention no more, for every man's word will be his oracle. For you have perverted the words of the living God, the Lord of hosts, our God. He said in the days of Jeremiah, what people were doing is saying, now, let's just do our word. Let's make it our teaching. And then when you go to Amos chapter 8, verses 11 and 12, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread nor thirst for water, but of the hearing of the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east, and they shall run to and fro, seeking the word of the Lord, but shall not find it. You know what's going to happen if we continue down the pathway that our country is going right now where we don't emphasize the Bible as we ought? We'll have a generation that will not know the Bible. In fact, I'd suggest to you we've got a generation now that is by and large for the country, does not know the Bible. But we may, must never let that be said of the Lord's church. God's Word is our corrector today. In 2 Timothy 3 and verse 16, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 says, The word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of the soul and the spirit and of the joints and the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. You see, correction will come. Jeremiah 2.19 
Your own wickedness will correct you. The children of Israel saw that. Your own backslidings will rebuke you. And sometimes we don't appreciate that punishment is good for us. Oh Lord, the snakes are among us. Well, you deserve it. Lord, I don't like the snakes. Well, you shouldn't have done what you did. David said in Psalm 119.71, It is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. Sometimes we have to admit that discipline is good for us individually. It's good for us as a people. I challenge you to study Hebrews chapter 12 where the writer says that at the moment no chastening is joyous but grievous. Yet afterward it yields a peaceable fruit in those who've been trained by it. Romans 5.3 says that not only that, but we glory in tribulations knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. It makes us stronger. Number two, the cure. And clearly, Jesus is the one to whom we are to look for the cure. Go back to John chapter 14, or 3, verse 14. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up. He's the only cure. You know, today we hear people say, well, just attend the church of your choice. As if all of them are acceptable. Can you imagine Moses saying, Well, just look at the bronze serpent of your choice. You can either look at the one that God told me to make, or you can look at that one over there, and that one over there may be just as good. No. It just doesn't make sense. There's one and only one cure. John 14 and verse 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes unto the Father except through me. You cannot get to heaven by going through Muhammad. You cannot get to heaven by going through Joseph Smith. You can't get to heaven by going through any other means than Jesus Christ. In Acts 4 verse 12, Nor is there salvation in any other for there is no under name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It's Jesus and Jesus alone. That's the only means of salvation. Now let me ask you a question. You read the text. When did the people get the cure? Before they looked at the serpent or after they looked at it? after they looked at it. See, the obedience was necessary. So many people today want to have this idea, well, you just say, Lord, come into my life. And then somewhere down the road, if you want to be baptized, you just go ahead and be baptized. Really? Is that the way you read Hebrews chapter 11? By faith, Noah built an ark to the saving of his house. When you read those statements of those great men, what did they do? They did something. 
then the result came from it. Now, caution. This is the last of the points. The bronze serpent ended up being turned into an idol. I want you to listen to 2 Kings 18, verse 4. Talking about Hezekiah, he removed the high places and broke the sacred pillars, cut down the wooden image, and broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days the children of Israel burned incense to it and called it Nehushtan. Nehushtan means bronze serpent. They burned incense to it. But it was not intended to become an idol. But they preserved it. They kept it. They made a relic out of it. I don't believe it's John the Baptist's arm. But Lord willing, when we go to Istanbul, we'll go to a place called the Kapi Palace. And in that palace, they have a room which supposedly has the forearm of John the Baptist. Of course, there are seven other places claimed to have it as well. So you, you have to take some things with a grain of salt. But would the Lord ever want us to have the forearm of John the Baptist and say, Oh, I've got to kiss it. I've got to bow down before it. Substituting a cross for the sacrifice of Christ. There's some people in their religion will walk in and they'll make the sign of the cross over them and they'll bow down and they'll kneel before a cross. Forgetting that it's not the cross, but it's the Christ on the cross that is worthy of worship. We need to be careful about inventing our own relics. He gave us items to remember. Lord willing, two weeks from tonight, we'll talk about the stones of remembrance. Sometimes people go to an extreme and deify them. For instance, I guess because of the news, I've been thinking about the Catholics a lot lately. One of the things they do is called, their worship is called the sacrament of uh, the host, which we tend to call the Lord's Supper. But they believe there's a doctrine of transubstantiation. They believe that once the priest blesses that bread that it literally becomes the flesh of Christ. Not that it represents the body of Christ, but that it literally becomes the, the flesh of Christ. And that they believe that the fruit of the vine literally becomes His blood so much that if there's any remnants left over, they go and bury it. Just like you would bury a body. You see, some people have allowed themselves to go too far. The bread, the fruit of the vine, is to remind us of the body of Christ and the blood of Christ. 
But itself should never be something of worship itself. You never worship the bread. You never worship the fruit of the vine. You worship the Savior that it represents. Jesus said that if he was lifted up, that he would draw men to him. John 12, verse 32, And if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all peoples to myself. You think about why. If I had been bitten by one of those serpents, those snakes, and I knew that Moses had put up a bronze serpent and God had said, look at it. Folks, I'm going to be finding that bronze serpent. Jesus said, if I'm lifted up, I'll draw them into people who realize their sin, they realize their need, they realize they should be cured, and there is a cure there. You go and you find the cure. Are you willing to look to Jesus for your healing? If you'll take your songbooks out tonight, we're going to sing this song of encouragement for those who are not Christians to encourage them to respond to the call of Jesus. Through faith in Him, repenting of your sins, confessing your faith in Him, and being baptized. That's following His commands, His rules, His instructions. And if you are a Christian and you need to be restored, there's no better time than the present to make your decision to serve God. Would you come as we stand and sing?